Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So welcome to this latest episode of the Core Kinetic Podcast. I think this is number four. Um, It was meant to be closer to number three than it is. Um, just because of stuff and life and whatever else gets in the way. But we have served up a wonderful guest for you in the uh, guise of Melissa Farmer. Hello, Melissa. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> Good afternoon. <laughs> Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Americans just aren't good at English accents. I'm just throwing oh, it out. Oh, God. Fine. All right. Um, so, Melissa, could you uh, do us the, the favour of just letting us know a little bit more uh, about who you are? I know all I know everything about you, but I, everyone else needs to know it as well. Sure. Um, my name is Melissa Farmer. I am a ex-pain researcher, current slash ex-pain researcher. My background is in clinical psychology, uh, but uh, while I was doing that at McGill University, I also got into pain research and um, specifically chronic pain physiology. Uh, so while I was doing research on, on animals, I was, I was you know, uh, treating humans with comparable uh, conditions and using them to model one another. And um, I got into brain imaging, did a postdoc on that. So I'm incredibly overeducated and really don't have much else to do with the knowledge other than talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like a real bona fide pain researcher and stuff. Yes, yes I am. <laughs> almost like that. Yes. Almost, almost just like that. Well, look, it's good to have. And we met a few years ago now, didn't we? I think we met in San Diego at the Pain Summit. Yes. And I think, I think was it in a hot tub or outside of a hot tub? I don't actually know the the exact details. I I I, I stayed thoroughly professional, and I just saw you wonderfully presenting i wouldn't go near a hot tub <laughs> of course not of course not the fabled san diego hot tub so look i am gonna hit you with some um deeply complex questions all right they're probably not right. that, they're probably not that complex for you if we're being honest um right so let's dive in so as you know about pain and stuff Let's start with the idea. One thing that I see discussed lots and lots in the world of kind of um, physical therapy is this idea of central sensitization. You've probably heard the term, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Once or twice. twice. And one of the big discussions, I, I, I think, is that we have this new modern biopsychosocial model that came out many, many years ago that's deeply misunderstood. Um. But I think that we often try to tie in this idea of this multifactorial model of pain and this idea of central sensitization as a kind of a, you know, a a way of tying these things in mechanistically. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So could you give us a little bit of an idea about, you know, um, how you see maybe central sensitization and then how that maybe relates to how we talk about it sometimes in this more, um, you know, global sense? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, so I learned about central sensitization from a mechanistic point of view, so from animal research. Yeah. And in that context, it's this beautifully specific mechanism uh, where you can study the beginning, the middle, the end. You can uh, trace all of the different markers of it uh, to a single neuron level. And uh, it is sort of the gateway to um, chronic pain. It isn't synonymous with chronic pain, but it's the gateway in that it's the first point where the nociceptive signal becomes independent of the environment. So it's really, you know, sort of profound. And uh, as I've uh, been exposed to to different uh, groups, um, different interdisciplinary groups, and even clinical groups within the pain world, there's this other sort of umbrella term, a hypothetical umbrella term uh, that people sort of a way that people use it uh, to reference um, unexplained pain that's become somehow centrally maintained and there's this sort of vague idea of an increased uh, responsiveness in the central nervous system that can account for many different things, just about everything that we can't explain. You can just toss it in there and, and you know, central sensitization explains it uh, from this hypothetical point of view. And so um, one of my pet peeves, which unfortunately I can't help myself but throw myself into conversations about it. Yeah, I have that problem to, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's a sickness. <laughs> it's, well, and it, but it's, it's just a, it's a shame in that I, I think it is a miscommunication from basic scientists to clinicians in terms of how, what this term means and how it should be used. So I, I see it as a failure of uh, scientific communication. Right. It shouldn't so, be clinicians' faults to to deci- decipher all of these things. Yeah. So you have this kind of Clifford Wolf, you know, and anyone who's ever struggled through a Clifford Wolf paper and you know maybe read it eight times to understand it, um, you know, will have got this sense that we're talking about something very specific in, mm-hmm. in that sense. That is this, you know, very much about you know, nociception and and maintenance of this nociceptive signal and changes uh, within responsiveness. And then also this idea that, you know, if if, if you've got sleep problems or any other problems, then that relates in some way to pain through this mythical central sensitization. Um, So how would we describe the other central sensitization? I know that the term often used is central sensitization syndrome. Oh, yes. So central sensitization syndrome or central sensitivity syndrome is a concept that was first uh, created by this guy named Eunice in 2000. Uh, He had a fibromyalgia clinic, and so it sort of naturally came from his experiences with his fibromyalgia patients. So it's a term that describes, oh, no, sorry. No, it's all right. We can't hear Okay. Okay. Good. Uh, so it's it is a term that's used to describe um, overlapping uh, and uh, sorry, overlapping group of uh, syndromes that you don't see any clear pathology in there, 
and there's an assumption that there's a common underlying mechanism. And Yanis's assumption was that, oh, I see my, my patients with fibromyalgia and there are often so many comorbidities, they must all be related. Right. Uh, so it is a, the two diagnosis, like I guess the two diagnostic uh, criteria are first some sort of symptomatic overlap. So comorbidity, pain comorbidities, yep. and then also demonstration of hypersensitivity to various stimuli, which according to Enos could be anything. It could be sensory, it could be environmental, um, noise, chemicals, medications. Uh, so it, it was sort of this, it was almost as if he took fibromyalgia as the, the core model for chronic pain and extrapolated from that. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that we see that quite a lot, we, you know, and maybe now we refer to it as a biopsychosocial model as well. It's probably got quite a few similarities that anything across this biopsychosocial spectrum can influence someone's pain. But are we still really searching for a mechanism for that? For cross-modality hypersensitivity? Yes, yes. I don't think I don't think it's reasonable to expect a single mechanism to explain all of that. Right, right. So um, central sensitization simply on its own probably doesn't, um, you know, from from in whatever sense probably doesn't simply explain that occurrence. Absolutely not. I think I I don't know what happened to good old stress. <laughs> Well, um, allostatic load type of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It seems like a, I mean, there, there is a generalized, it's been described in, in older literature as this generalized full body response to uh, chronic stress. And you do have these sort of nonspecific uh, inflammatory responses, uh, increased mental load. And that doesn't, just because chronic pain is a stressor, it doesn't mean that it, uh, its consequences also all of those things. Yeah. You can potentially get that from PTSD or some other chronic stress. Yeah. So, so you, you know, where, I mean, I mean, you've took a, taken us down a stress, a stress avenue. So I'm gonna I'm gonna walk down there with you hand in hand for a moment. Mm -hmm. So where do you see this kind of allostatic load idea fitting in? Because I think it sounds reasonably plausible that it could be um, a fairly overriding mechanism um, within this big, you know, chronic pain puzzle? So that's a tough question because first, I don't really know. I can speculate. Um, one of the things that seems clear is that the, the factors that initiate pain are typically different from the ones that maintain it. Oh, that's and such the, a key point, I think. And the factors that maintain it are also separate from the consequences of living right. with pain. And so just because they all go together in the same person doesn't mean it's all the same thing. Yeah. Um, and and on one hand, you know, concurrently treating different aspects of life, you know, sleep while you treat pain sensitivity and movement, et cetera, that's, that's perfectly fine. But whenever you start to get that, to that broad level of, of, I guess, lack of specificity, you lose your targets. You lose a direction, a specific uh, way to 
you know, test a hypothesis, apply right. a treatment and see an improvement for that, you know, specific change that you've made. I think that um, one of the tricky things about chronic pain is that it, my, my belief is that it is maintained by adaptations that our body makes to a, a sensory stressor. So in the sense that you distinguish initiating factors from maintaining factors, maintaining factors, those are in our body and how we react to the pain. And one of the things that we see again and again is that because the source of the pain becomes maintained within the body, it's hard to dissociate oneself from the feeling you have inside of your body. So it becomes sort of a self non-self issue. Yeah. And so yeah. if you're chronically, li if you're living every day with this feeling inside of you, it is hard to separate what is you and what is the pain. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, something that we often try, or we're taught to do, you know, certainly from, from, from my, uh, you know, t teaching that we're taught to try and find what is the cause of the problem. You know, so we're searching for the cause. Is it this sleep problem? Is it this movement based problem? Is it this stress problem? And sometimes it's not about any of those things, potentially as stressors. It's how you've reacted to that stressor, which might be an issue. And I, I, I think that's a very profound thing you've brought up that, you know, these sometimes you could cut off a stressor, but the reaction or, or the adaptation might already have occurred. Yes. And the adaptation, the word adaptation is important in that there is a learned component and that once you encounter a, a situation often enough, your brain naturally adjusts to the expectation that that'll occur again and again and again. One of the, the things that I think it's, um, is, is key to this idea of central sensitization is I don't think it's pathological. I think it's a form of like hyper learning, because if you look at, at, nociception from the beginning to end from the receptor all the way to the brain all of these signals are being enhanced not in a yep. sensitization form but just enhanced because they're important for survival and so whenever you think of any other type of learning where you have this enhanced signal at multiple levels of the body that means that it's important and your brain is going to learn it and your brain is essentially well your your whole nervous system is learning exceptionally well whenever you have central sensitization, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And, and I think that, you know, it depends on the patient, but sometimes even just couching it, reframing it in that way, your body has done exactly what it's supposed to do to protect itself. You did nothing wrong. You're an exquisitely adaptive being. Um, yeah. And, and you just never return to baseline. And so, you know, then the, the trick is figuring out how to adapt back to find a new baseline, which requires a new learning. Yeah. And I suppose that's that that's the piece of the puzzle that we haven't always managed to to find yet is how do we how do we find the right stimulus or, you know, I use that in a very, very broad sense. How do we find the right stimulus to create some form of adaptation? And I think that probably as, as much as many things can be implicated in the causation or the adaptation. Probably, do you think many things can be implicated in this, um, you know, recovery or, or 
you know, I, I want to use the term de-adaptation, but I think it's really a re-adaptation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that the more and more I've read about this and the more and more I've thought about it in terms of, for instance, CBT and mindfulness more recently, is the importance of attention. Right. And that if you strip everything away, what you adapt to is what you pay attention to. Right. Um, so I, I really, I'm starting to believe that you can really distill it down to that. So right. then you get into the the idea of what is competing for that attention. There are these yes. really important sensory signals that are pulling attention away, but then there are ways to deconstruct those sensory signals into pieces that are more factual and, and less unpleasant. So like Bruno Cayun, I love his work. Um, he's a, a mindfulness-based uh, CBT guy in Tasmania. Beautiful work on having patients focus on the uh, sort of the, the sensory sort of non-emotional sensory aspects of pain. How does your pain move? How dense is it? Um, how spread out is it? And he has patients, his essentially his, his exposure therapy is having patients focus on the sensory aspects to where they can experience their pain almost from an observational sensory right. point of view. Yeah. So, for, so I mean, I, I, you know, it's probably a poor term, but more of an objective view rather than an affective view of what they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And, and I, just I, to experience sorry. that there is something other than that you can experience pain in a non-emotional way is an important experience in itself. Well, I mean, again, I think you've, you, you've taken us down an interesting road there. Where do you see, because um, something I'm very interested in is that kind of affective motivational dimension of pain. And I think most of modern pain science describes the sensory component whereas i think we're always talking about why is the stimulus and the response why they do different things you know why does it only take a little stimulus for a big pain response but does that explain the more effective motivational aspects where do you see those as in in the role of uh, chronic pain maintenance i think that you know in terms of motivation if you go down to the, the basic building blocks of, of um, affect and motivation, there's approach towards something and avoidance of it or aversion. Mm. So there's this, you know, approach avoidance uh, dichotomy. And, and those two things are dependent on the same brain circuits. So they're right. not independent in that if you are approaching something, you have less aversion toward it and vice versa. And something that I've become aware of in the past few years is the idea that there might be two, sort of an internal version of this and an external version of this. And we normally think of approach avoidance as approaching something that you like and avoiding something that you think will hurt you. But whenever the pain is, whenever something aversive is in your body, you can't move toward it or away from it. How does that you know, play into that approach avoidance idea? And I think that one way of looking at it is to see relief or neutrality as the rewarding state and increasing discomfort as the aversive state. 
Right. So you see this whenever, you know, you have, you've eaten too much and you're full and you just feel kind of gross. Um, or uh, you have something stuck in your throat. This distension is one of the most common experiences we have of this aversion of some things in us that it doesn't feel good. And then whenever we digest, we don't have that distension anymore and, and we feel neutral. So the idea that our bodies are seeking uh, relief and neutrality as the reward state is a slightly different take on the role of motivation and that that suggests well it suggests that there's an interaction between your how you feel sort of your internal body state and also how moving within the environment modulates that internal body state yeah so it's kind of inactive and embodied as well well, but we, but, you know, after you take a walk, you digest more. So I don't mm -hmm. think it's necessarily dissociated completely, but it, I think you can conceptualize them as separate things. Okay. So where do you kind of, um, so what do you, what do you think are some of the issues? Because I saw actually, we, uh, there was a, di a discussion the other day on Twitter that, that you know, well, uh, we were all involved with, I wasn't involved with it that much. But one of the terms that I heard you use was kind of mixing up the concept of pain with the person experiencing it, which I thought was quite interesting. I thought was pretty profound uh, as well. So, you know, I think that that has been a fundamental issue within pain science over the last mm -hmm. however long, that we're very interested in the mechanisms and very interested in the nuts and bolts. And we can explain those, but how does that relate, you know, and we might describe that as the concept of pain, but how does that therefore relate to the person who's experiencing it? And I don't know, can you just expand a little bit more on, on your thoughts in this area? Sure. Um, as a person who loves mechanisms, uh, it's, it's always tempting for me first to gravitate towards those. Um, but the idea that, um, the same sensory stimulus can be experienced by many different people in many different ways brings you to the, the conclusion that the stimulus, the sensory experience only um, uh, takes you sort of part way in that our, and even if we're just talking perception, our perception at any time is not based on purely the input we're constantly sort of superimposing our memories and our expectations onto our environment mm. in that what are we looking for? What do we expect? And those sort of imprints of almost like an archetypal imprint of what does aversion mean to you is unique to every person. We all have early experiences where um, aversion takes form as feeling uh, like you're never good enough or feeling unloved. And these patterns uh, repeat over time and often they're very difficult to sort of get rid of. One of the one of the people who I think uses this concept really well is Peter O'Sullivan in his cognitive functional therapy where he somehow manages through his magic, his Peter magic, to um, to identify the core beliefs of the person that underlie mm. the pain suffering yeah. uh, through ex excellent interviewing. 
And the idea that there is a common belief, sort of a common um, suffering template, that whenever we have a new type of suffering, we sort of put it, we, we shift our framework to see the current situation as a repeat of the same thing that always happens to us. This fucking always happens to me. Mm. It's a deeper form of learning that's exquisitely individual um, and experience specific. And I think that any type of suffering ends up being an echo of, of that uh, early sort of programming. And I, I know I'm sort of getting abstract in a more, you know, psychological sort of way, but it's, it's something that I've seen again and again in that people take new experiences and reshape them in a way that they understand. And whenever it's an aversive experience, there are these templates they have from years and years and years in the building that they sort of put that experience into. So then it becomes a matter of how do you, what kind of discomfort and pain have you been accustomed to? What do you think you deserve? How, how, you, how it, it sort of reflects on your own worth? And how much control do you feel you have over it? Um, so that definitely gets into the, the realm of more psychotherapy. Um, but physiotherapists often do psychotherapy within the course of a session too. Well, I think that if you if if we say that working with people in pain from you know right across the spectrum of you, of, you know from pain research to psych to psychotherapy to physio to chiro to osteo, you know working with people in pain always covers these aspects because that's exactly what the pain puzzle is, isn't it? it it's across all these different um, all these different aspects of, of what we've of what we've got um, going on. So that noise was just me picking up my whiny puppy, by the way, every <laughs> And now he's now he's fully content and he doesn't have to whine anymore. Um, you know, but I think that that was very what what you did there was kind of put it into into context, didn't you? That that you know the, what people experience and what they suffer is contextual to them and even if they even if everyone felt the same sensation or the same stimulus that their response to it and how it fits into their world and their dimensions um, is always going to be uniquely individual can we ever explain that mechanistically is it all biology Uh, or is there some magic in there that we may never be able to explain and put our fingers on I vote magic. <laughs> yeah, I love magic. Yeah. <laughs> but the, I mean, we're getting into the age old question, aren't we? You know, are we more than the sum of our parts? Uh, and um, I suppose that's a, a, a unique part of how we would describe emergence, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. it's more than the sum of the parts. It's not just the mechanisms and the bits and the pieces. But also something, I mean, that, that is intrinsic to pain is, and our experiences are how we interact with other people, how other people respond to us yeah. and, and how that makes us feel. And in that way, some of the, the work, um, it was just, uh, I think a, a year ago or so that I really delved into some of the, the work on social sort of manipulation of pain in that uh, it seemed like across studies, I, I saw that, 
if you're in pain and there are other people around you, you look to the other people to get cues on whether you're safe or in danger. If someone around you is anxious, at some very deep level, you read that as danger. Uh, and so, for instance, in a uh, experimental study, if uh, someone um, has an anxious partner and first they do a, a pain task, fine, uh, you get their pain threshold, then their anxious partner comes in, their pain threshold will reduce. They'll feel more pain because there's the, the idea is because there's this external cue that something in the environment isn't safe. And so looking to other people for cues about whether things are okay versus things are, there's something dangerous, I think also plays a role. And we read uh, strangers as dangerous. We read people mm. who are close to us as safe. But mm. if someone close to us who's safe is anxious, there's still this sign in our environment that there's some sort of danger. So I think that you know we're constantly reading our environment and other people to interpret whether a sensory experience is, is threatening or not. So yeah. the, the idea of safety and danger also in the past few years has really emerged for me as something just so, I think you can distill many things down to that. Okay, interesting. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, if we think about that, how does that therefore play into things like the therapeutic encounter then and the need for, you know, things like therapeutic alliance? You know, I suppose you can read it in that framework, as you know, in some sense as being about, you know, danger and, and, and safety. But is there a little bit more to it as well? Oh, for the therapeutic alliance, um it is about it's about corresponding worldviews and whether or rather the degree to which emotions play into those worldviews. So mm. the I, I always go back to the, the classic um, Jerome Frank's uh, persuasion and healing where he defines the therapeutic alliance as a situation where the sufferer, so he calls it healer and the sufferer. The sufferer believes that the healer can help them. The healer believes that they can help the sufferer and they engage in a ritual together uh, that is the thing that mediates the change. So that could be writing a script, that could be doing physiotherapy, that could be sitting in a, a you know, doing talk therapy. But it, it then becomes a matter of, of finding a healer or a someone who's treating you, a practitioner, who shares your worldview on your experience. Yeah. And that's why even personal friends, if the first thing, if someone's looking for a therapist or a PT or anything, do you mesh with them emotionally in, in your worldview? If yeah. not, go to someone else. Yeah. Because yeah. you will not get as much of a benefit as if you have someone who, who meshes with you, who aligns with you in that way. Yeah. And I was reading, um, you know, I like to delve into the, the biopsychosocial model, you know, quite a lot because I, I, I just gravitate towards it. Um, and I've been reading a lot about person-centred care. And in my reading about person-patient-centred care, it took me also onto this kind of relationship-centred model. So rather than it being a person-centred model, it's actually a relationship-centred model, which was quite profound for me because it kind of doesn't, you know, rely on either the person in pain or the healer 
maybe it relies on this kind of middle area, this common ground, this ability to navigate a way forward together, which I found really quite profound uh, to, to think about. I don't know what your thoughts are on the kind of a on, on a relationship centered focus. I mean, from from what I remember from the literature, one of the main findings part is partner solicitousness. And that if you have, um, if you're with a partner who offers to do everything for you, uh, treats you as if, um, you know, in a very good meaning way, in a well-meaning way, uh, offers to do things for you, says, you know, sit back, don't worry, you don't need to extend yourself, let me do this for you. The more a partner acts in that manner, the less agency you're able to mm. And yeah. so, and it's an act of love, but there has to be, you know, I guess you, you have to maintain this idea that you're co-actors. There isn't yeah. one person who can save you. There isn't one person who can take the pain away. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. It's a, and, yeah. and so, you know, to echo that kind of sentiment, all the kind of people who I know that have, you know, who, who are living well with pain or have overcome chronic pain, always point to this kind of moment of where they discovered that kind of sense of agency and realized that they had to take, you know, um, I had uh, Keith Meldrum and Gilletta Belton on um, a couple of episodes ago, and both of them talked about exactly that, that at some point, you know, they came to this conclusion that, you know, searching for someone to heal them probably wasn't going to be what they required, that actually this realization that they had to take things into their own hands was a big thing. Um, and whether that's a realization they come to on their own or a realization someone helps them to come to, it seemed to be a really pivotal moment. Absolutely. And I mean, even if you look at the stages of change, that's a, a core theme. You know, the sort of pre-contemplation is I'm waiting for someone to heal me. Uh, as long as I find the wrong right doctor, I'll be okay. Mm. Versus the point where you're ready to act on a problem yourself. That sort of marks the transition into um, the capacity to change. So, all right, let, I'm going to ask you one final question then. How do we, in, in under 30 seconds, how do we solve the entirety of... No, I'm, I'm only joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because that would be great, wouldn't it? We could sell this. We could be billionaires. We could we could live on a beach in Honolulu forever. Um, what what do you think that some of what do you think would be a key message um, that you would give to to therapists? You know, more physical based therapists ab about you know things like chronic pain. What do we what do we really need to know to help us understand it better and and help people who have pain better? It gives me pause. Yeah. Um, it's a big question. I get it. I understand. <laughs> a cup. I mean, in terms of how the patient, how the client views pain. Um, I think that. Well, there are a couple of things. There's how the patient views the pain and then how the modulating, how the patient views themselves. Okay. Um, how the how the person views their pain, um, reducing uncertainty, 
increasing feelings of safety uh, and creating an environment where that can happen comfortably is essential. Right. Yeah. Um, so if you so anxiety and all of its trappings, um, unpredictability, lack mm -hmm. of control, uncertainty, all of those things uh, are are huge targets. But also, I'd say an increased focus on self-compassion, uh, promoting self-compassion in the, mm. the patient would be optimal because we all emotions have sensations associated with them. Yeah. And a lot of the pains that we have, whether um, by conditioning or just you know, by design, they have that pain has negative associations, negative emotional associations there. In terms of even just a body mind view, conditioning yourself by creating an emotional state that counters the. Okay, if we <laughs> if we assume that all emotions have a sensory uh, correlate. Yeah. You can assume then that uh, by changing sensations, you can change emotions. By changing emotions, you can change sensations. Okay. That's a big leap, but still. Um, <laughs> That's fine. We can leap. But but what that means is that um, one way to impact sensations that you don't really understand is to try to create emotional states that create a physical effect that you do want that can counter the, for instance, if someone has foot pain, uh, it's a very localized pain, they have negative affect focused in that area versus compassion or gratitude. These are whole body uh, emotional states and even not just whole body, sometimes they're dissociated, like self disembodied emotions and that you're putting yourself in someone else's perspective, for instance, with gratitude. Mm -hmm. So there's this disembodiment effect. I think that... Um, Thinking much more fluidly about how emotions can impact sensations would be a, a huge benefit. Yeah, and, and, and I think that that's it. And we, I kind of rewind to what we talked about earlier is that I think we really, really um, don't pay enough attention to that side of pain. It's much more about. So I describe it as what you feel, maybe rather than how you feel sometimes. And, uh, I, I, you know, um, that for me would be such a, a, a key point for people, you know, who deal with people in pain and people in pain is that we need to understand more about the emotional side of it and how we can, you know, I mean, would you describe that as suffering? I, I don't know. Is that can we tie those things together or, or, or they, is that maybe a leap as well or a general? No, I, I think that it's I think that that's the best, especially in the chronic state suffering absolutely captures it and in terms of you know we we began this the conversation with central sensitization which is a very mechanistic uh concept you know what is the cure for central sensitization if we want to jump there really quickly all central sensitization is uh perpetuated by peripheral input right so if we just think about that there, then, you know, the first part of this conversation can just be encapsulated into that. Yeah. And then yeah. I would say superimpose emotional safety onto that viewpoint. So okay. 
if there's if there's a peripheral source, I'm going to be putting up a, a, a blog post soon about central sensitization. If someone wants more detail, they can look at that. But ultimately, my treatment approach wouldn't necessarily be focused on that. It would be focused mm. on the person's perception of their body and their experience. Yeah, which isn't, to be fair to the people who look at a wider view of central sensitization, that isn't far away from also what they're trying <clears throat> to do sometimes. True. But but the thing that I don't like about the wider view of central sensitization is people have just like stuffed everything possible yeah. in there, like catastrophizing, which if you look at Mick Sullivan's work, is also a, a sort of a, a bid to other people around you to get help because you, so it's a partially a communicative act. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, whenever you start just stack depression, anxiety, you put all of that on there. First of all, it becomes something that the, the healthcare practitioner feels less able to treat because mm. oh, it's just all this one, you know, yeah. nebulous thing. I, I can't do anything about it. But also that, that pathologizes some really natural responses. You have chronic yeah. pain. Yes, you're going to catastrophize. Yes, you're going to yeah, feel yeah, depressed. Yeah. Those are all normal reactions and they should be respected. They yeah. shouldn't be... The best description I've heard of it is they are normal responses to an abnormal situation rather than an abnormal response to a normal situation. Absolutely. I think that's Gert Crooms when he was discussing um, the fear avoidance model. And I think that's what's happened with the fear avoidance model is there's a, 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 patho, uh, a pathologization of some of these psychological factors. Or we might even call them cognitive factors. And there's that a kind of a delineation sometimes between what would be a purely psycholo psychological in the sense of depression and anxiety versus, you know, more cognitive about, you know, thoughts and, and what have you. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, so I like to call them cognitive factors because I think psychology sometimes, it, it, you know, it can be seen as a pathologization. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I feel like cognitive. It, I just because of my background, I I separate cognitive from emotional. Right. So I, it's it's. Yeah, it's, I understand. Cognitive seems to be more like rational thought, doesn't it? Yeah. But I don't. For me, it means just thought potentially. Okay. Just internal experience. Yeah, just just driven by my over my, by my thinking about things. So catastrophizing is a thought process, is it? Isn't it? Mm -hmm. I, I would think. And we could describe it as pain related worry. And fear of uncertainty. I was just thinking about this the other day. Yeah. You know, like the the magnification, the lack of control. Those are things that happen whenever we're there's some sort of anxiety and we feel uncertain about our capacity to change it. So there's yeah. also this like uncertainty element. It's like the fear oh, of uncertainty. And we know that uncertainty in the diagnostic process is huge. So it's a big driver of worry and distress. I think it was Michelle or Misha. I can't remember how you describe it. It's a second name. She was a nurse and she wrote a lot about um about this uh, diagnostic uncertainty and it's like the most mm. stressful period within someone's journey um, with pain or with you know disease or illness and and I think that that uncertainty actually is one of the biggest drivers of people seeking help in the first place because they want mm -hmm. to make sense of the problem mm -hmm. and then whenever they seek help they find that no one well very few people can help them make sense or 
they give them a story that doesn't turn out to it makes simple sense but doesn't turn out to solve the problem which you might mean like nursery plastic oh, well listen that we could do that on another podcast i'm not going <laughs> down this i'm not going to alienate the entire pain world in, in one podcast so um but look i think we've done great today uh, i always enjoy listening to you speak i think you have a such a great way of describing these things and such a great grasp of the science in this area which is always you know really good to listen to when you have you know lots of different competing ideas and and these type of things so uh, Melissa thank you so much for coming and talking to me thank you Ben and I just want to say I also appreciate how you intuitively gravitate towards some really important ideas just okay. naturally well I, well, I appreciate that. I love, we have a love in moment. Isn't that fantastic? Mm. And look, I hope next time I am in Chicago, which should be next year, um, we'll, we'll have some dinner. Um, my treat as you came and talked to me so um, eloquently and wonderfully. So adieu. Adieu. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.